everybody. This is Bob Goodwin, and welcome to another episode of Career Club Live. Uh, if you're not familiar with Career Club, please check us out at career.club, where we're using proven sales and marketing techniques to help people like you find a career that's important to you. Uh, we're also really pleased to announce uh, an innovation for employers who are needing to take workforce actions. We are bringing human-centric approaches to helping affected employees move on with their careers with what we call next placement. So if you're an employer and you are looking at having to take workforce actions, please check us out at career.club and next placement. So with that, I am extremely pleased to introduce a friend uh, and former boss, Jared Schreiber. Jared, welcome. Hello, great to see you again, Bob. Uh, it's great to see you. So uh, Jared is the author of a new book called Breakout Brands, which talks about why some brands make it and others don't. And Jared, I'm going to read your description because I love your LinkedIn page description, where you say that you're the father of three teens, a unicorn, a robot in the book, which we just talked about. And Jared is also the uh, co-founder and CEO of Numerator, or former CEO of Numerator, which many of you all know. Uh, as well as being the founder and president of Revolution Robotics Foundation. So, uh, Jared, it is a real pleasure to have you on today. It's great to be here, Bob. Thanks. Awesome. No. So, as is our want, we like to ask a couple of icebreaker questions to help people get to know you. Um, so, well, first of all, I'm going to go off script for a second. Where are you calling in from today? Where do we have you? <laughs> My new home of Budapest, Hungary, actually. Been here for four years now. Yeah, that's awesome. So, but where were you born and raised? Well, that's a tough uh, question to answer, but the core of it would be uh, Phoenix, Arizona and around there, but all over the Western U.S. Yeah, nice. And then uh, where did you go to school? So undergrad at Arizona State University and then master's at MIT, uh, business for undergrad and, and uh, systems engineering for, for master's. Wow. Now, tell us a little fun fact about what you did at ASU. <laughs> well, uh, I tried to be a uh, football player back with uh, Jake Plummer, Pat Tillman, and all those guys. I uh, got, mm -hmm. got to know them in the process, but uh, I wasn't quite good enough. But, but I was a decathlete and javelin thrower on the track and field team and, and uh, com competed, uh, had a great time there. Now, we will talk about some of your, your passions outside of work in a second. Uh, a little bit about your family, because we talked about father of three teenagers. Yes, yes. So... Married for almost 25 years now to my college sweetheart, who was on the tennis team at, uh, at ASU, kept her stateside for a long time, and now she's getting me back to her home country of, of Hungary. Uh, we have three kids. One of them is uh, studying material science at Oxford. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our daughter uh, just accepted a rowing scholarship to University of Virginia. And our youngest, uh, it's too young to tell, he's a uh, sophomore in high school. Wow, you guys should be very proud, and I'm sure that you are. Um, you've had a very, very interesting career trajectory. I, I, I know that people would really enjoy kind of hearing some of the things that you've done that have led you to where you are today. Oh, boy. Uh, well, my some of my first jobs were working in retail on the retail sales floor, whether it was uh, uh, Big Five Sporting Goods, for example, where I sold, sold shoes and sporting goods. And I saw firsthand the effects of, of mer merchandising and the role that packaging played in terms of, yeah. uh, of driving the merchandising, uh, attracting consumers and driving sales. 
I later worked at Blockbuster Video where I became a store manager and I learned very quickly about how slight nudges by, by salespeople on the floor or via merchandising cues could really influence consumer behavior and, and change what movie they were going to watch or whether they bought an extra Coke and a candy along with their purchase. Mm. And from there? Oh boy. Well, then, then I actually got a degree and, and could get better jobs. So, so <laughs> uh, from there, I went to uh, Intel back in the heyday of the late 90s and early 2000s. So, rode the dot com boom and the bust. Uh, that's what introduced me to working with data. Part of my job was to figure out what in the world was going on during the dot com bust because we didn't know at the time. All we knew is that we were producing twice as many uh, CPUs and microchips as were actually being sold, and our warehouses were getting full, and we needed to understand why. And uh, I was I was on point for a big part of that for Intel supply chain. And I had to work with a ton of data across a ton of different mm -hmm. systems to figure it out. And so I taught myself some coding, building uh, data warehouses and decision support systems in the process, really fell in love with with that, working with data and building decision mm -hmm. support analytics and decided that's what I wanted to do for a career. And so that's what led me to, to MIT, where I could study uh, kind of systems engineering and supply chain and, and work on uh, some of my own ideas uh, mm -hmm. that, that led me down an entrepreneurial journey. And uh, tell us a little bit about uh, RSI and then how maybe you, you parlayed sure. that into InfoScout. Sure. So, um, after, after MIT, I uh, decided not to pursue my own ideas uh, or join a startup quite then. I kept finding fatal flaws in, in each one that I interviewed with. And so I joined a company called Teradata, which at the time had all of the world's largest data warehouses. So uh, all of Walmart's point of sale data and all the analytics, for example, were done there. Learned a ton from that process and uh, kept looking for startups. And I found one in Silicon Valley that uh, we ended up pivoting to become retail solutions. And we convinced retailers to freely share their point of sale data with the brands who sold products through them. And we built all the not only the pipes, but the business intelligence and analytics so that the brands and retailers could work off of the same data and the same insights to drive better execution at retail together. So pricing, assortment, promotions, you name it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and it was actually that experience that, that led me to found uh, InfoScout, which is now known as Numerator. There, there were so many brands who kept asking business questions around, you know, you know, this promotion I ran, I can see the sales lift, but is it truly incremental? Like, you know, are, are existing customers just pantry stuffing at a discount? Because that's not really incremental. Uh, or am I reaching new customers, uh, yeah. consumers, because that would be incremental. And point of sale data doesn't allow you to answer that. You actually have to get the data uh, from consumers and on consumer behavior. And you can't do it within a single retailer. You have to understand how those consumers shop across all retailers. And yeah. so uh, that's what led me to, to take a totally different approach to engaging consumers directly to capture all of their purchases, no matter where they shopped or what they bought, mm -hmm. down to the item level via mobile apps. You know, we basically got to ride the beginning of the mobile uh, mobile app wave and create an app that incentivized consumers to take pictures of their shopping receipts, no matter where they shopped or what they bought. And we read out the item level details and ended up tracking uh, a million consumers over a billion shopping trips to, to understand uh, consumer behavior better. Yeah, well, your, your co-founder, John Brailig and you did an amazing job. Uh, of doing that. And, and I think I speak for everybody that spent any time at InfoScout uh, slash Numerator. That has just been a career highlight. And we're going to talk a little bit about company values and things like that in, in a little bit. But um, the company that you guys built, again, really has been a career highlight for so many folks. Um, what do we find you doing these days with uh, uh -huh. robotics and things like that? 
Yeah, a few things. Uh, one of my passion projects, uh, I had become a coach of my kids' robotics teams when we were in Silicon Valley. And so we turned our garage into a robotics lab for kids. And, and um, there were these annual competitions and they and their friends would, would build robots to compete in those challenges. And I saw firsthand how amazing that could be, not only at inspiring them towards science and engineering, but also building life skills, uh, creative problem solving, communicating ideas to others so that others can envision it as well, giving feedback constructively, taking it constructively. And so I really wanted other kids uh, to have that opportunity. And what I felt like was the way Robotics for Kids has been done to date lends itself towards wealthy school districts with uh, parents who are engineers, but won't uh, get more widely adopted unless it's made much more accessible, both from an affordability standpoint and a complexity and kind of a curriculum and content that's engaging. And so I've set out to to solve those challenges with uh, what I call the Revolution Robotics Foundation. And I I think we're making great strides in terms of making robotics much more accessible for kids so that anywhere you have enough resources for organized basketball, you have enough resources for organized robotics for kids as well. That's phenomenal. I, uh, I think something that you and I share is this stuff can be fun and it can be accessible by, you know, a lot of people, not, mm-hmm. as you said, sort of like an elite few. Um, I'm on the advisory right. board of something called Perscolis. It is teaching technical skills to people who won't traditionally get a four-year college degree. Mm-hmm. And so do I really need to know the Canterbury tales to be a cybersecurity professional? <laughs> Probably not. So, right. so I really applaud what you're doing and you're you know, putting sort of your money and, and your time towards what you believe. And I admire that about you. Um, outside of, of that, just for fun, where do we find Jared Schreiber of the week? And what do you, if you're, to the extent you have time to Ooh. goof off, what are you goofing off doing? Well, an hour and a half outside of Budapest is a beautiful and a huge lake called Lake Balaton. It's larger than Lake Geneva. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, well over a hundred miles around. Uh, we've got a small vineyard there where we're, we are building a winery, and I love to stand up paddleboard and do so competitively now. Uh, so, so I love to get out on a lake, and and a lot of people stand up paddleboard for leisure. And uh, well, I just attack the water. <laughs> you continue to be the world's most interesting man, Jerry. So let's 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 dive into the book because. Um, before we we started pressing the record button, I, I said to you that I really do believe this book is going to become required reading uh, for CPGs. Um, just it's data driven. It's not, oh, I have a theory, but it's like, what does the data tell us? Which I think is phenomenal. But do, do you mind just kind of providing uh, an overview of why this book and why now? Sure. Well, I think in a way you just hit on the core concept, which is here I'd worked helping thousands of brands uh, use data to, to better drive results at retail for you know, 15 years. And fundamentally, I didn't really have a particular theory of, of what are the tactics and techniques and, and levers to pull to really drive brand growth. Moreover, uh, as the years went on, I I became more and more confused because we worked with Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola and Unilever and Nestle and all the greatest brands out there. And each one of them had kind of their own take and approach in terms of what what to do to actually drive growth. Is it through greater household penetration? Is it through greater loyalty and buying frequency? And, you know, those are at the macro level. And then you could drill down 10 layers below that in terms of, uh, of, of the role of advertising and how it drives growth. And And so I I felt like more and more our clients uh, had very tactical requests uh, related to answering business questions with the data. And yet what we were sitting on was the ability to answer the most fundamental strategic questions of all, which is, 
what works and what doesn't in terms yep. of driving long-term sustainable brand growth. And, uh, you know, along the way, I'd quasi become a disciple of Byron Sharp and Ehrenberg Bass Institute that promoted a very specific view uh, as it relates to how to grow brands. Uh, and at the same time, doing different analyses and studies, found, found some insights that seemed to contradict it. And so I really wanted to know and understand uh, what works and what doesn't. And, and when I read Good, uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins, kind of the like all-time business classic, uh, I realized right then and there that, that that's the book I needed to write, except instead of doing it for companies, to do it for brands. And again, what we're, because I'm a giant fan of Good to Great, and what I love about Collins's approach to that was the data will lead us to the answer, the answer. rather than trying to backfill right. a, a presupposed answer with data that exactly right. to the conclusion. So, you know, I know we're going to get into this. Um, just... And this may be an unfair question before we dive into things, but is there one sort of outstanding aha that, that strikes you that you got from all the analysis that you did? Wow. You know, I, I think it was one of the very starting tests we did on the data. So, well, there's a few. One is we studied 25,000 brands over over a four to five year period uh, to identify breakout winners, brands that really grew in terms of both their real retail sales and their market share in the category that they competed in so that they didn't just ride, ride a rising tide of the category. They had to beat out their competition to, to make yeah. our, our winners list. And what shocked me first is out of 25,000 brands, uh, there were only about 60 that achieved one and a half percent share market gains over a three year period. So basically, you know, four years after the starting starting point of the study, they had only grown by one and a half percent market share and uh, grew their retail sales by 10 million a year uh, on top of that. So any meaningful amount of retail yes. sales in the U.S., and what I think about is like, those are goals that I would expect every brand manager to have. All 25,000 of those brand managers should have that as, as a standard goal that they're, they're actually receive their pay and bonuses on and determine whether or not they're successful. But literally only 60 out of 25,000 made it. I mean, that's like taking all high school track and field athletes in America and looking at how many make the U.S. Olympic team uh, in any given year. You know, so in terms of career projection <laughs> uh, and trajectory. So that's how hard it is to actually have a breakout or, or really successful brand. And I thought going in that the bar would be so much higher in terms of what kind of market share gains and retail sales gains would be necessary to be one of those elite brands. So let's review that real quick. It's you achieved at least uh, $10 million in incremental retail sales for sales. three years Three years in a row. Three, three, yeah, or a cumulative of thirty million over three years. Yeah. Fair enough. So, and what so was you the could have a slightly flat and and market share grow by at least a half a percent per year for three years to one and a half percent over three years. How it's is that? So how small. Is that that's that so should small. be how to not get fired. I, that's my thinking. So that was like, are you kidding me? That's yeah. how low the bar is to 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 be absolutely outstanding to, to be in the top one half of one half of 1% of all brands uh, was really shocking to me. And then think about the billions of dollars that get poured in to try, <laughs> to, try to, to, to try and feel that growth. Yeah. Exactly. And, and where does that money actually go? Uh, so, so I think that just to level set people, it might be very helpful if we did just sort of a quick overview of and Maybe you'll describe this before we get started. The brand growth flywheel. Sure. Gladly. So, so, so maybe I, we can I, look I, at a, a visual yeah, of that. Yeah, one. The, 
And as a step back, I, I mean, I think it's important for people to know, I didn't have a theory as to how brands grow. There were hypotheses. And, and my research t- team and I, and a shout out to, uh, to Paul Stanley and Jake Krakowski, who were, who were the leaders of that, that team doing a lot of the work, we set out to, to find what are all the different hypotheses about how brands grow. And we, we discovered like 30-something ones from academic articles to, to industry thought leaders to some of our clients. And we tried to put those to the test against the data. And we started to find um, not only correlations in the data, but kind of causal directions. If, if you do this, it drives that. Mm-hmm. And as we started mapping out all of those kind of cause and effect and correlations uh, into a causal graph, which is really state of the art of, of various um, uh, complex uh, systems and, and social sciences, when you try and understand behaviors of systems, you try and draw things in a causal graph and marketing doesn't really have one. Uh, and so I set out to like, how do we take all this evidence we have across every purchase of all these consumers, all the advertising, all the in-store pricing, all the online e-commerce activity reviews, put it all together. Mm-hmm. And as we started to map things out and just move these, these links of data points to, you know, arrows to, to effects and causes to effects, um, this, this flywheel started to emerge, this loop, a reinforcing feedback loop. Uh, that you can see is the core black in this diagram. This diagram I call the brand growth flywheel. And at the core of it are four key points, product attraction, purchase occasions, product experience, and brand equity uh, uh, built around the product itself that, that form the, the repeat loop that is the, the core driver of growth for brands on a sustainable, ongoing basis. And so, um, you know, that is really, uh, I would say this summarizes all of the different findings of the book into into something where you can understand how the different marketing levers feed into each other uh, and the role that they play. But I think instead of tr- treating like the, the four P's of marketing as pillars mm-hmm. uh, or independent levers, I think it's really important that we understand that there there are feedback loops at play here and some activities reinforce activi- uh, gains or benefits or other lovers in, in different ways. And this is what this really helps us understand. And, and I, one of the things I think is really important maybe for listeners to get and, and hopefully readers of the book to get is this cuts across all categories, all consumer right. types, right? right? Geographies. Is, mm-hmm. is there anything that would be a caveat or a limiter to what this would apply to? You know, I think uh, I think there could be in B2B instead of business to consumer, you know, so this is consumer goods. And Correct. so I think it applies very strongly to consumer goods, certainly fast moving consumer goods. I think even consumer durables and soft goods, this, this very much applies to still and consumer services. I think um, uh, if you read the book, you, you'd see some examples I give on the B2B front, you know, so a la, how did InfoScout grow? Well, uh, you know, it won its first business. It delivered an amazing product experience. Clients thought very highly of it. They were more likely to consider us the next time they had a business question or need. They bought again. They had another great experience. They were willing to tell tell colleagues in the industry about it, whether it was via webinars, speaking at conferences, or just as they moved jobs to another company. That's the social validation that further built the brand equity, which which uh, made our offerings even more attractive and and considered for purchase uh, when there was a relevant job to be done, and just created this reinforcing flywheel effect. And so, while I would say the heart of this data and the insights are built off of fast moving consumer goods. The, the key learnings and findings uh, are applicable across industries. So thinking about, uh, you start the book off with a story about Rouse, 
the spaghetti yeah. brand, if I'm saying the name yeah. correctly. Um, yeah. Maybe just at a high level, could you maybe sort of walk us sure. through how Rouse sort of checked some boxes here and did a great job? You got it. So, so Rouse Homemade Pasta Sauce is a brand I didn't even know existed. And it was one of our winning brands. Uh, and they'd grown to hundreds of millions in sales rather rapidly. Uh, what's interesting here is Rouse had been around for 27 years. It had been sold in retail for over 20 years. Mm. Why is it in this last four-year stretch, uh, 2019, uh, I'm sorry, 2016 through, through 2019, that its sales just continued to take off and gain more and more share, market share in the pasta sauce category? How'd they do it? Uh, guess what? They had zero advertising. They spent no money on TV, radio, print, digital, anything that you would think would be necessary to grow. What they did is, is they had an amazing product that consumers loved. They had all natural, fresh ingredients, no corn syrup, no sugars, um, just amazing flavor. Anybody who tasted their product loved it. It was expensive. Instead of $2.50 a jar, uh, it was $7 to $8 a jar. Uh, but they use that to, to their advantage. Uh, they basically go to retailers and say, yeah, you can say, sell three cans of the cheap stuff. And here's the revenue and margin you're going to make off that. Or you can sell one can of ours. Here's the revenue and margin you'll make, which are both higher. And your customers are going to love you for it because they are going to repeat buy our product over and over again. And if you carry mm -hmm. it, you're going to get the, those sales. And they took a very data-driven sales approach to retailers. Uh, and this was their new president who came in in 20, 2015, who implemented this new strategy for go to market. Mm. And when he did, you see the trajectory of Rouse start to take off and they won greater and greater distribution across more and more retailers. And with that distribution, they gained access to more consumers who, when they tried the product, loved it and started to repeat buy the product over and over again. And those consumers would tell their friends and family and others who would then try and buy the product. And so uh, I think it's an incredible example of product-led growth within the consumer goods industry and that advertising had absolutely nothing to do with them, absolutely demolishing Barilla and, and so many Ragu and, and other brands that, that we all know of through, through their advertising. Yeah, well, it, it, it's a it's a captivating story because, like you say, it just starts off with something highly counterintuitive, which is advertising was not where they went and poured a bunch of money into. So, if we can just go back to the split screen for a minute, um, maybe, maybe it's a good point. There were eight key findings, or sort of, I, I think my recollection is sort of sort of eight key findings. One of which you were just sort of touching on. Maybe it's a good opportunity to double click, which is the biggest difference between winning and losing. Uh, brands equity drivers is the extent to which consumers see their products as innovative or unique. Yes. It sounds like Rouse just nailed that one. Uh, absolutely. It was truly unique and, and differentiated in that regard. And so one of the things we did is, is, um, Bera, which does a syndicated brand equity tracker for many years now across hundreds of brands, was the only data set out there that we could leverage to go back uh, in time, look over that time stretch of 2016 through, through 2020 and say, for our winning and losing brands, how did their brand equity and the drivers of their brand equity change over that, that time? And what we found was looking at over 144 different drivers of brand equity that Vera tracks was that there were, there were uh, 
let's call it nine of which that really stood out in terms of being big differentiators for the winning brands versus the losing brands. Mm -hmm. And of those, there were two that, that stood out to an extreme as being highly differentiating between the winning and losing brands. And that is the extent to which consumers found their products innovative or unique. Um, that, that fundamentally, at the end of the day, having a differentiated product mattered most in terms of dis distinguishing winners from losers. And that is completely counter to what we've been taught over the last many years by, say, books like How Brands Grow, which would basically say differentiation doesn't matter. Uh, it's about brand distinction um, and, and the elements of branding, but not necessarily the product itself. They, they think the product is a commodity. And I think all of the data show and the differences between our winners and losers show is, well, you may think of pasta sauce as a commodity, but the winning brand was one that actually differentiated itself on a product basis, not on a distinctive brand basis. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I read, memorized how brands grow because like you say, you know, some of our really big clients like Procter were, were quite deep into what that was about. Mm -hmm. And yet unlearning some of that stuff, it's like, well, it sounds good, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. what the data actually shows is something different. That's right. And, um, That's you know, right. For folks just kind of back on methodology, this relied very heavily on numerator data, which is the, the longitudinal consumer panel to be able mm -hmm. to track purchases over time from the exact same households. Right. So it weren't lookalike households. This was no, the same household. And the, the, the point about that, I think is really important. Maybe this kind of takes us to another for me was a very key finding was the repeat and consecutive repeat metrics. Yes. Can you explain what that is and why, why it's so important? Sure. So, so I think capturing and understanding the extent to which consumers not only try, but repeat buy a brand has been known for, for decades and is measured by all the different providers and, and brands pay attention to this. Um, and however, I don't think they've really understood or appreciated the, the essence of, of what it means and implies. And in part, because they're measuring any time repeat, does the customer ever come back and buy that brand again? Well, under the hood of that and driving that uh, is something much more important and fundamental, which is they buy the given brand, they, they use it, they try it, they use it on their very next purchase occasion for that type of product. Do they repeat by the brand or do they buy something else? This is the consecutive repeat purchase rate. Yeah. It was something first discovered in the 1950s on the first sets of consumer panel data by a scientist from the Manhattan Project who got his hands on the data and discovered you know, they, these fundamental laws of science related to, to thermodynamics and other behaviors actually applied to consumer data. And it got lost, this, this finding got lost. And why did it get lost? Because, you know, if you're Nielsen and you're having to run databases and calculations for clients that you can consistently run and repeat, well, that old database technology wouldn't actually allow you to, to calculate a consecutive mm -hmm. repeat. You could sum the number of times somebody had bought something. And if they would bought it twice or more, then it's a repeat. So that's really easy. Figuring out whether or not on their very next occasion for that same category of product, they bought the same brand again, actually is computationally intensive. And so we lost track of this metric because it was too hard to report on. Well, now modern database-based technology, we can do that again. And so what we found and what we actually proved mathematically, uh, and it's also in the book, is kind of the proof behind this in the appendix for those who are more science-oriented, is, is that actually consecutive repeat rate is the fundamental indicator that we can measure 
of a consumer's probability to purchase your brand on any given occasion. Uh, and fundamentally, as a brand manager or marketer, what you're trying to do is shift a consumer's probability of buying your brand versus any other brand on the next occasion. And the single best way to actually measure that is consecutive repeat purchase rate. So, so again, I think what you just said in terms of the data now allows us to understand this air quote nuance, mm -hmm. which isn't mm -hmm. a nuance, it's a fundamental driver. Driver. Something mm -hmm. here. But if, if back on product uniqueness and innovativeness mm -hmm. and just product quality, does, does the product do what it purports to do better than other category participants? Well, there's a real strong link between am I repeat buying this because it's on promotion again? What's probably not right. on promotion again, right? right. But now I, I, I tried it. Hey, that was significantly better than maybe mm -hmm. what I've been using to satisfy, you know, that use education previously. I'm going back to that. That's exactly right. And that, by the way, you, you spoke about promotions. So promotions, everybody sees sales left when they run a promotion. Yes. The question is what happens afterwards? And if you use point of sale data, you tend to see, well, not much happens afterwards. So all of that lift from a promotion was incremental. If you study and track consumer behavior over a longer period of time, what you actually see is those consumers who bought on promotion, the very next time they go back to buy that brand, they are less likely to buy the same brand again as a result of having bought it on promotion because it has now anchored their price uh, expectations related to what this product is worth at a lower level. And so it's one of the reasons in our data sets, we found that, that the winning brands that grew year over year over year did less in-store price promotions than the losing brands. And, and the losing brands tended to rely on more and more and more uh, in-store price-related promotions, a la temporary price reductions, TPRs, et cetera. And so it's, it's again, one of these counterintuitive things where you think you can measure uh, sales lift from promotions, but but what you're measuring is in a very short period of time, uh, this this short increase in sales velocity. Yep. But what's actually happening under the hood is a decrease in brand momentum, and that decrease in brand momentum has long-term effects for the sustainable growth of the brand. Well, that is going to be a hard drug to get some people off of. <laughs> for sure, the CPG sure. industry is pretty much grounded in the economics. That's of right. Trade it promotion is. dollars, and That's yet right. it's it's definitely to the brand's peril that they play this game. It is, but they can play it more wisely than they do today. So uh, don't get me wrong. I, I, I do think uh, there should be a shift away from trade promotions to brand promotions. I think it'd make a pretty compelling data-driven argument with that, with decades of data in, in the book. But, but let's say you can't change that. What can you do? Well, shift more of the trade funds towards, towards new products. Right. Shift more of the trade funds towards attachment rates of your brand in one category with your brand in another category. So you get consumers who like your brand in one category, buying your brand in adjacent or another category where they don't already do so. Dove was a huge winner with this. You know, people knew Dove lotions. They knew the soaps. Were they using it for shampoo? Were they using it for deodorant? Were they using it for others? And, and by getting uh, that, that brand attachment uh, from, say, Dove Bar Soap to all of a sudden uh, Dove Deodorant. Dove Deodorant was one of the huge breakout brands in our category. Procter & Gamble is brilliant to this. They didn't just do it 
uh, within a brand, but, but Febreze, for example, was a breakout brand. They started advertising other products in the laundry category or, or home goods category mm -hmm. that, that had Febreze in it. And as a result, sales of actual Febreze pro products rose and rose. And so that's an example where you can wisely use your trade spend with and through retailers to actually drive meaningful growth versus focusing it entirely on this product on sale now. Sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, sounds like as a trial vehicle, it's a great idea. As a repeat yes. vehicle, maybe not so much. That's exactly it. That's one of the key findings is, is yeah. you can drive trial and it can be worth it uh, via discounts and advertising and other things. Those are the, those are the best times to use trade promotions and, and to use advertising is when something is new. Uh, however, on an ongoing basis, uh, I think the money can be invested a lot more wisely than it is today. And again, back to back to the flywheel. But if the product experience is really, really good and it is mm -hmm. clearly superior and prefer mm -hmm. preferred by a consumer, mm -hmm. they will go yep. back to it and you can measure that. That's exactly it's, it's instantly <laughs> measurable. And so, it's so not much. time bound. It's not it's not tied exactly. to particular marketing activities. It's independent of time. Yeah. So, so let's talk about it because this is this is actually another huge thing. There, there's sort of this ongoing uh, debate between loyalty and expanding mm -hmm. household penetration. That's right. Yep. And and people tend to fall in one camp or the other. Sure. And what says Jared? What says the data? <laughs> so I agree with. Um, how brands grow and Byron Sharp and others that you cannot grow a brand without both. You must grow household penetration and you must grow repeat purchase activity or buying rate or other things that it's often known as the, the double jeopardy law uh, of marketing or brand growth. Uh, it is true. The question is why it is true and how you, how you leverage why it is true to drive growth. Um, and so uh, what we found is it's not as simply it's not as simple as just getting more people, including light category buyers, to to try your brand, because the light category buyers don't buy the category very often, and therefore they don't buy your brand very often, and therefore you don't get many repeat purchases from them. So what we actually found in the data was no uh, winning brands do not outperform losing brands in terms of gaining sales from light category buyers or or gaining household penetration on light category buyers. The way that they differentiated themselves was by getting a higher proportion of their sales from the heavy category buyers, the people who know the category inside and out, the people for whom this category means something in their life and how they live their life. They've tried and tested it at everything. And the winning brands are the ones who win among the heavy category buyers. They get all of their heavy purchase uh, activity, which results in revenue growth, but also Think about anything in life. The people who are experts on something influence the people who are not experts on something. The people who are heavy category buyers, their behaviors influence the behaviors of life, light category buyers, not the other way around. It's not light category buyers influencing what happens with heavy category buyers. And I think that's what's got lost in the discussion over the last decade or two. Uh, and, and what we've, we've, I think, very compellingly shown with data is you've got to win with the heavy category buyers and you have to win their repeat purchase activity uh, ongoing continuous year over year. And if you do that, you're going to have a killer brand. And if you don't, uh, you're going to have a losing brand. 
And if we go back, we don't have to flash it up in, in the flywheel, right? I mean, we certainly see the effect of reviews, social media, and just as Absolutely. consumers, we all know it. Like, particularly if I'm a light category buyer, by definition, I don't know a lot about the category, ostensibly. Mm -hmm. So let me go to people who do know a lot about the category. And who am I? who's winning that battle? Who has the most online reviews? Uh, for example, you're trying a new product for the first time. Which product has the best shelf placement? Which product has the most shelf facings? You know, which one is is eye level? Uh, if you look it up online, which one has the most reviews? And by the way, more and more of those online reviews are starting to make their way onto the shelf in physical stores and retail. I'm seeing it more and more in Europe, and I know it's starting to happen in the U.S. And so um, fundamentally, that that's where brands need to look is to understand the behaviors and drivers of behavior of the heaviest category buyers win there. And as a result, uh, they will actually gain more. The, the, the grabbing that pulls along the light category user. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, so let's see. Um, uh, let me, ah, this is a good one. This is around demographics and mm -hmm. the way that brands will say, hey, we're winning with a certain demographic. What we should do then is double down and mm -hmm. we're going to own that demo. Absolutely. Yes. Isn't that a great idea? Isn't that what they should be doing? <laughs> yeah, because it's easy, right? So it's so it's your lowest hanging fruit. You're basically like, wow, our, our, our uh, response rates or our customer acquisition cost is so much lower among this demographic. We're already winning. Let's just spend more and more there. Um, and and in, in reality, it turns out to be kind of a fool's errand. Uh, it it limits uh, the scope of what your brand can become among the total category and category buyers. And so what we saw happening was as winning brands grew, their consumers looked more and more like consumers of the overall category. And the losing brands tended to look more and more like a niche or a concentration within the category. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of a good example, Modelo. Modelo is, is a great example. You know, so it's a Mex Mexican beer. Um, and instead of doubling down all of their brand positioning and marketing and distribution uh, where they were historically strongest, which was high, high Hispanic uh, areas and, and consumers, they did everything they could to broaden their reach to, to just represent Americans at large. Uh, if you look at their advertising, if you look at their sampling campaigns in bars and restaurants across the country, everything that they did in their positioning was to try and try and be uh, the most popular Mexican beer among Americans at large, as opposed to being the po most popular Mexican beer among Mexicans. Uh, another example similar was Mission Tortillas versus Guerrero Tortillas. You know, Guerrero positioned itself from its packaging in Spanish uh, with words in Spanish to its website, very focused on traditional Spanish recipes. Mission was just trying to appeal to everybody and why they might want to use a tortilla at all. Maybe a chicken Caesar wrap in a tortilla, for example. And they provide recipes uh, for tons of different ways of leveraging tortillas. And Mission grew and grew and Guerrero didn't. And so the lesson is look as much as you can like the or appeal to the category buyer, the category, category demographics. That's right. right. That's right. If you really want to grow market share in your category, then you need your buyers to look like the makeup of the category as to being some kind yeah. of unique niche within it. So um, kind of last thing. Well, actually talk about occasions, because if we look at the, the flywheel, it really does sort mm -hmm. of begin with occasions or, 
That's lead right. states or the other terms that people the, might occasions, use. Occasions is the crux of the flywheel. So, so look, it's, it's product centric. You know, you, you can only do so much if you don't have a great product. So, so it, is, it is a little bit of a product led growth type flywheel, but the ticker or the counter of how often this spends has to do with purchase occasions. And this is the other aha moment. Very early in the research, putting some hypotheses to the test, we said, which metric best explains year-over-year growth for the winning brands versus the losing brands? And we were like, well, unit sales should be one of the highest, right? Or household penetration, like, you know, percent of people who buy the product at all should, should be it. And we tested a whole bunch of different metrics. That's what came out on top. The number of purchase occasions, not how much they bought, when they bought. Um, it was just total number of purchase occasions won. It wasn't how many units were sold, because what turns out is, is some brands lowered their prices to sell more units, but that doesn't drive overall total sales growth, especially on a year over year over year basis. That's not sustainable growth. And it wasn't household penetration. Um, which shocked us. We couldn't believe that purchase occasions outperform household penetration. And so that led us down just really trying to understand the mechanics of how that could be and why, uh, and, and led us to, to the final insights that we provided in this book. Well, you think about, I, I know that you cite this one in the book too, but like hard seltzer, uh, in theory, mm -hmm. it's in the beer category, right? And so right. if, if, like White Claw and, and these these kind of brands, right? Yeah, yeah, truly, and, and whoever else is in mm -hmm. the category, right? And if I'm now going, well, wait a minute, am I going to have a beer or am I going to have a hard seltzer? And mm -hmm. hard seltzer starts winning that occasion more and That's more right. often. Guess what? You have these brands that just all of a sudden have you know, tremendous, tremendous growth. Um, exactly right. Because exactly they're winning right. that usage occasion, not mm -hmm. just competing within the category mm -hmm. for household penetration. That's exactly or whatever right. Else. Yeah. And sometimes it just comes down to the job to be done. What's the job to be done? And in the case yes. of, of beer, it's often, okay, you know, a little, little bit of alcohol, socially, you know, acceptable way to drink alcohol, have a conversation, have some flavor, have some refreshments. Well, hard seltzer can do that too. And it's not as heavy and there's more different flavors. And, and you know, so in other words, it created itself as, as an alternative to beer, at, at, you know, at getting that job done of being this light, refreshing, socially acceptable way to have a little bit of alcohol and um, did an excellent job of it and provide variety when you're hosting and other things. And White Claw among those brands really stood out as, as a winner. Well, I want to, there's a whole other piece of this conversation I want to start getting into, but I, I hope that folks are already seeing that there, there is just a wealth of insight uh, to be gleaned from breakout brands. And uh, again, I think the beauty of it is that it's all grounded in data. I wanted to, to kind of move the conversation over for just a minute, Jared, if I could, to career advice. And um, again, I'm just effusive in my praise for the culture that you guys built at InfoScout. And I want to say that we built because culture is... No, you're a part of it. No, it's a team effort. But, but you know, I, I just remember some things, and, and particularly transparency to a fault, you know, which I, it's, again, that's mm -hmm. just tattooed in my brain and, and you guys live that one so well, but you, you've had a, you've had a very cool career and, and there's been some, I think there's definitely a, a narrative that crosses, you know, all the, the interesting stops that you've had in your career. You, you, you go after things that are interesting to you. You find a topic that you're interested in sure. and then you kind of dig in and get smarter in it. Luxurious and, cat. And then, yeah, and then where's where's an unmet need in your passion area? And then how do you go rush to fill that? But 
maybe talking about your kids. I, the, the way I usually phrase the question is, what advice would you give 25-year-old Jared? Maybe you're already giving that advice to, <laughs> to at least two of your kids. But but what, what would be some overarching career advice that you would give folks listening to this? Well, I, I think generally find, find either areas of industry, areas of human need or interest that, that you yourself have some kind of gleaning or interest to. You know, work in, work in an industry or a field uh, where you feel some kind of inclination, curiosity, calling, appeal. It makes life so much easier than if you're working in an industry where you're just like, oh, I like what I do, but, you know, what the, what the company does or what this industry does socks you know it's, it makes it harder to get up every day and motivate yourself and you know i think we can all be our best when we're more highly motivated and we're we're we're, we're just uh and, and that tends to happen when we're aligned in our interests versus what the company's interests are and, and what it's doing and working on and so i would say you know if you're younger figure out the kinds of things you're passionate about for me i realized wow i love pulling together data to answer questions with data as opposed to opinion. Like I just became passionate about that. I'm like, I can't believe we make decisions any other way because so often the decisions are so arbitrary. Like why not have some facts to, to, to inform us and back it up? And I just became passionate about that. And I know it's kind of nerdy, but but it's what led me in, in the direction that I went. And I, I'm, I'm super excited about that. And so you know, I look at my oldest studying material science at, at Oxford. He's loved chemistry. He loved physics. He loved them both. He could never decide between them to and well how do you put them together material science uh, right and and so two subjects he loves he's able to combine into a unique specialty that's really valuable and by the way he loves space he loves energy technology well material science is really important for those two and it helps yep. him continue to explore in those directions and so it's kind of a synthesis for him well speaking of speaking of how brands grow that's actually and we teach this to our clients it's essentially the hedgehog concept what are you mm -hmm. really good at what are you interested right. in? What drives your economic sure. model? Sure. Right. And and basically it's the hedgehog concept. Abs so absolutely. You've done a ton of hiring and uh, I've even been on the, the, the other end of your interviews, <laughs> but what are, what are some of the talent qualities, Jared, that you look for when you're hiring folks? I think most important for me is creative and collaborative problem solvers. People who love to solve problems and uh, they love to do so with others in a collaborative way versus lock me in a corner and let me just figure it out myself. Uh, and and uh, the creativity aspect. So, so our education system and all education systems are highly geared towards convergent thinking uh, and training convergent thinking towards a single answer, you know, one approach to get one answer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so much of business and life is about coming up with the best possible way that, you know, and, and to understand that you have to be able to understand what the possible paths forward are yes. and evaluate the pros and cons and then choose one based on that. And so a lot of what I've tried to do in, in hiring practices is identify if the, if the candidate or individual really enjoys solving problems, uh, is creative in terms of how they can go about it, uh, can demonstrate that, and especially from a divergent standpoint. Uh, and then are they able to do so collaboratively? If you offer new information, if you offer a counter opinion, how do they respond and react to that? Do they get defensive? Do they, do they argue their points? Are they not able to, to synthesize that new information you've just given in order to come up with a better answer and a better path forward? Uh, to, to me, the, that's probably the the biggest essence that I'm looking for in a candidate. Well, what I love about that is it, it, that's a really interesting blend of hard skills and 
you know, just sort of the, the mental hardware that you come to the party with, but also the softer skills, right? And, and the ability to take Critical. feedback in, like you said, and the ability to collaborate Critical. with others because we don't work in a corner by ourselves. Even when we're working virtually, we're not working by ourselves. We might be alone, but we're not working by ourselves. And exactly I think right. that's you know, such a great insight on your part. Um, again, at, at the risk of just being gratuitous, I think that the way that you led InfoScout, you had modeled a lot of great behavior for me. What are, what are some key leadership traits that you would share with folks, some maybe that you learned a harder way and maybe some that come to you more naturally? I think um, I think I learned the hard way at Intel, which was a very alpha dominant, aggressive culture where the, the loudest, firmest voice, strongest opinion kind of won the day um, that I learned from that experience. So that, that is not I, I started to become like that. And I realized uh, during my grad school years, that is not who I wanted to be as a leader. And so uh, I think I may be overcorrected at times in terms of trying to really um, create an environment where there were many voices at the table. Not everybody had the same, same weight in terms of the end decision, but everybody felt like they had a voice to be heard and could contribute to coming up with the right or best answer at the end of the day. And that just became very important to me in terms of how we ran a company, uh, is that everybody has different perspectives, experience that they can contribute to this. But if you want them to make the right decision on their own, you have to give them additional context and perspective so that, that when you're not in the room, they, they can make the right decision. And so just creating that kind of that kind of environment where, um, you know, there's there's free flow of information. Information within a company is not a source of power um, it, that, that if you have information and somebody else doesn't, that, that's that's actually not a good thing <laughs> that, that we want that free flow to help make the right decision, whether it's collectively or individually. Well, I remember that uh, we had David Taylor, who you may have met along the way, CEO of PG, and David was on, uh, gosh, almost a year ago now. But he had a saying that says, "None of us is better than all of us." All of us, and that's well, isn't that great. Yeah. And, and yeah. we we also had um, Johnny Taylor, who's the CEO of Sherman, and something that I really felt like I learned from him. And this is around diversity and inclusion kinds of topics. Mm -hmm. But to your point, you've got people from all kinds of different backgrounds with different points of view and experiences to bring to the table. The, the key is treating people, you know, with respect and in having dialogue, even disagreements, mm -hmm. but having them with a civil spirit oh. and treating. Yeah, people absolutely. And, and I think, I think that's critical. And I think I always wanted people to know that, that they were respected, you know, whether or not agreed or disagreed that, that they were, they were respected yeah. uh, and, and that we treat people as people as opposed to people as employees. You know, um, yes. you were, you know, hopefully you always felt like you were Bob Goodwin first and a kick-ass uh, business development guy second, you know, but, but you were a person first and you got treated that way in all dealings, interactions and communications, regardless of what your role or responsibility was with the yeah. company. Yeah. Um, well, I want to be mindful of the time. Jared, I could I could stay and, and chat with you for a couple hours, no problem. We we could even go have a beer usage occasion. <laughs> but um, this is awesome. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about, whether it's on the book or career kinds of stuff that you want to share with people before we let you go? 
You know, I, one thing that I just like to share with people, especially as they become managers or maybe they're further in their management career is, um, you know, if you care about your employees or your colleagues, um, you you owe it to them to provide them feedback, whether or not uh, it's it's positive feedback or critical constructive feedback. Like if you care about people, uh, you owe it to them to help to help them get better and make them them better. Whether they ask for that advice or perspective or not, and I think we 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 need to have the guts and courage to do that with each other. That if we care about them, that we we tell them kind of what we see and observe. And there was a technique I learned along the way that I found really effective called the two minute coach that most people aren't familiar with. And, and uh, you're familiar with it because, because we tried to, to, to make sure people at, at InfoScout Numerator were, and it's, it's, you know, if you're going to have this conversation with, with a team member and, and you see something that didn't happen, right. Instead of calling them out for, you know, you shouldn't have done that, this and that, you just state what you observed. You know, I noticed this and this, this happened and you shut up. And you listen to that person explain from their perspective what happened and why it happened. Uh, and by not making ac- any accusations or critical judgment at first, often I've learned, holy cow, I didn't know that was going on. There's, there's way more to this story than I expected. But often it creates an opportunity to have a conversation about, hey, what is the goal or what was expected there? Yes. Uh, and, and what could be done differently next time? Uh, and, and, you know, what's a better pass forward? And, and so I, I just feel like that's a really effective approach for, for showing somebody that you actually care for them to, to be at their best. Uh, and, and I'd highly encourage, you know, everybody to, to really take it upon themselves to, to help, help make their colleagues and their employees uh, better. I think everybody fundamentally at this end of the day wants to be a better version of themselves. Yeah. So that's what I would encourage. I, I think that that's awesome. I, I know that our, our good friend, Scott Anderson, you know, would always say feedback is a gift. Right. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you bringing that up, Jared, because as a self-confessed people pleaser, you know, sometimes that, <laughs> ah, I mean, sometimes it feels confrontational. And I'm being yeah. mean or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and it definitely mm-hmm. does not have to be that way mm-hmm. at all. And, and something mm-hmm. that you said in that with the, you know, kind of state the observation and then be quiet. Mm-hmm. You One of the things that we used to talk a lot about and it's really stayed with me is assuming good intent. That's right. And, so and you, don't, you may yeah. not have all the facts. Mm-hmm. And like to go on the war path mm-hmm. or to be aggressive or whatever, just making judgments where you have an incomplete fact base. Hundred percent. That's right. exactly right. That is the most common error mistake. You just make a judgment thinking you have the context and knowledge because you saw it. You saw what happened. Uh, and and honestly, I think that's often the worst thing that you can possibly do if you're trying to 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 help somebody improve or 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 get the best outcome out of a difficult situation. Yeah. So again, I I, I need to put a period on this sentence here at some point. <laughs> so we'll make we'll make that right now, Jared. Just phenomenal content. I can't recommend the book enough. Um, I'm waiting for your next book where you t- uh, share some of your management leadership uh, skills and beliefs. Uh, but this has been great. Thank you so much. Again, really encourage folks to order Breakout Brands on Amazon. It's a phenomenal read. It's accessible. It's It's got the nerdy appendix. But for people like me, I can read the words and it all makes sense. So with that, Jared, it's great seeing you. Yeah, thank you so much for appearing and thank you everybody for taking a few minutes to listen. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, everyone. Okay, okay thanks. I know you're good.